Hello and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. This week on the show, I'm joined by Adam Rittenberg from ESPN. Wanted to do a status report on a couple of big-name coaches who came into the season with varying degrees of uncertainty. Stock is up on Jim Harbaugh at Michigan. Stock is down on Ed Orgeron at LSU. What does this mean going forward for each program and each coach? Adam covers college football nationally, but lives in Big Ten country and has a very good grasp of what is going on in that conference. It was just a little over a year ago that the Big Ten seemed to be in disarray. Now the conference has five top 11 teams and a top five matchup this weekend. Winning sort of cures everything, but we'll ask Adam what's going on at the offices in Rosemont, how Kevin Warren is making a transition into the job in more normal times, and the relationship between conference office and campus as things return back to normal. Lastly, we'll preview week six with our five most intriguing games of the weekend. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on appodcast.com, where you can also find my colleague Rob Motti's NFL Podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, just about anywhere you like to get your podcast. If you like what you hear, give us a good review and rating. It helps college football fans find us, and it helps us find more college football fans. If you'd like to email the show, send questions and comments to aptop25mailbag at gmail.com. And away we go. Joining me this week on the podcast is my friend Adam Rittenberg from ESPN. He does a great job covering college football nationally. He is also located in Big Ten country. And since this kind of has a Big Ten flavor, this show, it's a, it's a good week for the Big Ten. And we wanted to do some Big Ten things. I brought Adam on. So, Adam, thank you for joining me today. It was fun spending a whole bunch of time in your city and uh, with you last week. Adam was uh, my chauffeur for uh, a good chunk of Friday and Saturday uh, when we w- I went from Chicago to Notre Dame to cover the um, uh, Notre Dame-Cincinnati game. Great to be with you, Ralph. And, and yes, uh, that was a lot of fun. Um, we, we drove through a part of Big Ten country to see a non-Big Ten game, and, and being with you made it a little less uh, boring. Uh, it's not the worst drive. There are worse drives in the Big Ten. I, I may be making one this week to Iowa, but uh, <laughs> that, was, uh, that was a lot more uh, fun to be with you and hang out and and spend time and, and see a, you know, a decent game, but an important game, certainly as far as the national college football scene goes, because now we have a legitimate uh, playoff contender out of the group of five in Cincinnati and uh, a lot of interesting things to, to, to discuss, certainly in the big 10. It's been a very interesting year uh, so far in, in that conference and a lot of different possibilities still to be worked out, especially in the East division. But obviously the big one this week, which I know we'll discuss is uh, Penn state, going to Iowa. I think it's the first top five matchup of, uh, of AP top five teams in Iowa city since 1985, the, uh, the Chuck long number one, uh, Michigan versus number two, Michigan. Do I have that right? Yeah. How long do, do you remember? I, you're a little younger than I am, Adam. How do you remember that game or are you too young for that game? No, I was four. So okay, I, I don't yeah. think I remembered it. Um, I, I wasn't in, into college football just yet, but <laughs> yeah, I, I've heard a lot about it. And, and obviously, uh, 
you know, uh, I talked to Chuck and Kirk Ferentz was an assistant back then. So definitely a game that resonates for anybody who, who knows some of the, bit, the history in the Big Ten. Yeah, that that game is uh, is one of the games I, I talk about, like, you know, how what games made me college a college football fan living in New York, uh, Nebraska in general, the Nebraska program being so dominant. Um, was something that definitely caught my attention. And I remember that game, that Michigan-Iowa game, pretty well. Like, you know, or at least it's it, – I don't know if it's like I truly remember it or like I, you see the highlights now and you can catch the old replays of it. So it brings it back to me. But that was definitely one of those games also where I was like, wow, this sport is pretty cool. And I, I don't know where Iowa is, but that looks like a pretty <laughs> cool place to be right now. And that game was definitely one of the ones that like sort of brought my attention to college football and helped make me a college football fan. Before we look at ahead to this weekend, I want to look a little bit back and take the temperature of a couple of coaches who came into this season. I don't know if hot seat is the perfect word, probably for Jim Harbaugh it is. I don't know if it's the perfect word for Ed Orgeron, but we definitely came in thinking like things could get volatile at LSU for a lot of reasons. So let's start with what happened this past weekend with those two coaches, because we seem to, it's sort of a status report, right? We've not quite midway through the season. Orgeron had another rough loss. And man, that schedule at LSU is brutal going forward. And it's as is, is, is amazing as it might seem that you might be firing a coach two years after he wins a national championship. I, I, I just feel like there's a lot of like, what's going to go on next with Ed Ogeron at, at LSU. And, you know, what is, what is your sense of whether they would fire a coach two years after winning a national championship? Like, shouldn't that build up a little more credibility? Yeah, you know, it, it, you just I was just down in New Orleans uh, for a conference the last couple of days. So there's definitely a, a feeling of this is not good and could could get worse here. Just looking at LSU's upcoming schedule and you know, really, you know, there haven't been a, there hasn't been a lot of good news around the program since the national championship um, back uh, in, in January of, of 2020. You know, there's been some off field issues you know, last year. It felt like one dramatic thing after another, you know, even starting with the first game where you know, Derek Stingley has this um, illness uh, where he has to go to the hospital the night before the game. And then they uh, lose to Mississippi state and can't stop a nosebleed. I mean, it was, it was a, me- it was a mess. Um, and it kind of was that type of season where it was just a lot of volatility. And so uh, now, you know, Ed Orgeron reshapes the coaching staff and brings in, you know, new offensive and defensive coordinators. And, you know, they go out and lose to UCLA in the first game. And now it's just kind of uh, every week kind of seems like, you know, plotting through and, 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 and almost a referendum on, on where things are headed. So you t- it's kind of a long way to, to, to say, yes, they absolutely could make a change. Um, there's precedent, obviously, in the division <laughs> with Auburn uh, and Gene Chizik. And even though Ed Orgeron is, I think, more, much more connected to the LSU program and certainly to that area than Gene was to Auburn, um, you know, it won't stop them from doing something. And their athletic director, Scott Woodward, has been very much uh, a, a deep sea or big, big fish hunter in the coaching carousel. And it, it's helped define his ret legacy. And there, there's a sense among other administrators that he wouldn't hesitate if he feels like it's not going in a positive direction and can't be rectified 
to make a change and bring in somebody else. So it's a very, I would say, hot spot at this point in the season. You know, something should be noted, and I'm going to steal from um, our friend Bruce Feldman from Fox uh, and The Athletic. I was listening to him and Stu Mandel, and he brought up a really good point. We keep sort of comparing Chiswick Ogeron because of the idea, oh, two years after you win a national championship, you get fired. But Ed Orgeron's resume is a lot better than Gene Chizik's was. Uh, Gene Chizik had one great, amazing year with Cam Newton where he won a national title, um, but really not much other than that. A couple of like eight win seasons, I think, were his peaks on the front and back end of his career at Auburn. Uh, whereas Orgeron, you know, has had some wins. I mean, he's, he's built up a pretty good resume even before last year it falling off. I think they finished in the top 10 the year before they went to the uh, they won the national championship. Um, So so again, with connections to the uh, to the school with a little bit more of a resume, I don't think it's a it's a perfect correlation. Remember, Chiswick also went 0 and 8 that season. Yes. The SEC. Um, So I think that does buy while I I don't think there's a ton of patience there for for Coach O. Uh, and if and if they pull off of, you know, what they have three wins now, if they only win one more game, right, if they only, like, you know, they have ULM on the schedule and they just get rolled through the rest of the SEC. Yeah, that's probably, you know, that's probably a, a situation where you're going to see a move. Um, but I do wonder if you get into that, they win, you know, it's a very tough division. They win seven games in that area, maybe eight. Uh, which again is possible. They have a, a, enough talent, and and the other part part of it being like, what what is the big fish you're going to get? So I, I do think it, it's not a perfect correlation between Chiswick. It makes sense to bring that up because of the obvious reasons, but but like, would you make a move on Orgeron if he wins seven or eight game and you don't have a big fish? You know? Yeah. And that, and that's what I, you know, he's going into the weekend. You, you just kind of feel like, like two bad weeks in LSU is in real, you know, they're in a place where they would like a change or, or at least consider it. But I think your last point is so important, Ralph. Like who is that big fish? Who makes sense? Who would Scott Woodward want to go after? Um, and I, I honestly think one of those, uh, uh, big fish uh, kind of got uh, 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 caught this weekend a little bit to a degree in Tuscaloosa. Because Lane Kiffin is a guy that I think would excite a lot of LSU fans. Um, the offense and the the, the 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 track record as a play caller and winning a national championship with uh, with Nick Saban, uh, being at, at USC way back when with Pete Carroll, there would be a lot of interesting things there, and obviously very connected to Ed Orgeron as well. But you know the the way they lost that game, how does that affect a possibility of a, a Lane Kiffin candidacy for LSU? You know who else is there? There there aren't that many obvious. Uh, choices, you know, does, does Billy Napier, who's done a great job within the state or the group of five program, does that get you, uh, you know, excited enough to make that move? Because you, you, I think you brought up a great point too, that it's not an apples to apples comparison with Gene Chizik in the sense that Ed, Ed Orgeron's record against the top 10 is outstanding. He's mm-hmm. won a lot of big games. It, you know, the, the issue with him just seems to be that he needs to have an A plus staff around him. And 
obviously the presence of Joe Brady in 2019 was, was, you know, huge uh, and critical for them winning a national title. And then he leaves and then they've kind of struggled to find a, uh, anything resembling what they had on, on offense. And then they had Dave Aranda. He inherited Dave Aranda on defense from, uh, from Les Miles. And one of the nation's best defensive coordinators respected around the country. And he moves on to Baylor. They really struggled to fill that position this past off season. You know, Durante Jones, they settle on a guy uh, who's an NFL assistant who hadn't had a ton of coordinator experience and, and clearly was not their first or second choice. Um, not to say he's the reason why uh, Ed Orgeron might get fired, but it, it just, it's a situation that um, I think there's just not as much confidence in the, the coaching staff. And even though they have some, a lot of talent on that team, you know, they're young at spots and they're inconsistent at other spots. And it was a kind of rough watch on Saturday, that, that second half against Auburn and not something that even though they led most of that game, gave you a ton of confidence, like, Hey, LSU's just a few plays away from contending for the SEC. It feels like they're a lot farther away uh, from that position just two years after winning a national championship with one of the best teams in college football history. Yeah. It, so let me let me shift the conversation over uh, away from Coach O. Uh, and again, it's a brutal schedule, but but the LSU's got enough talent to win some of these games on a brutal schedule. I don't know if LSU is all that much. Uh, is is particularly less talented than Arkansas or Ole Miss or or even Texas A and M at this point, which of course you know again that's your sort of quote unquote big fish, uh, and we'll get to a little more Jimbo later. But the other status report coach that we got to go to uh, is doing much better, and that's Jim Harbaugh. Uh, Jim Harbaugh took a pay cut coming into this year, basically set himself up to be on the hot seat, basically. Uh, also set the University of Michigan up to, hey, if we need to part ways, it's not going to devastate our program. Um, you know, I, frankly, kudos to Harbaugh. For, for, for seemingly caring enough about his alma mater to get them in position where, hey, it's on me. If, if we don't figure it out, we are in, you know, we can go our separate ways. It's not going to cost you a fortune to get rid of me and you'll, you'll, you'll move on from there. Well, they're 5-0 and now, Michigan is. They just beat the heck out of Wisconsin, Wisconsin team that is dysfunctional offensively and <laughs> lost its quarterback, who is as, as tough a year as Graham Mertz has had. He's clearly the best guy on that roster, <laughs> you know. Um, but nonetheless, that's been a measuring stick game for Michigan in terms of sort of like, it's one thing to lose to Ohio State, but we can't be the program that gets pushed around by Wisconsin. Uh, and they didn't get pushed around by Wisconsin. They did the pushing. There's still a lot of big games down the road for Jim Harbaugh, but it, and it's hard as someone, I think a lot of people in college football are like a little skeptical of buying in on Michigan. Everybody's like, well, let me see him for another week. Let yeah, me see yeah. them for yet another week. But, but we're getting close to the point here where Harbaugh is going to be you know, is, is going to be, I guess, sort of comfortable. I, I don't know how many more wins does he need where we finally all go, okay, that's settled. He, he, he did well this year and, you know, and we're going to, and we're going to see more of this in the, at least the next year and the years to come. So what's interesting here, Ralph, is that you have like Ed Orgeron, you had a coach who largely reshaped his staff um, coming off of a disappointing season. And so far, it seems to be working out better at Michigan 
than it is at LSU. There's also the question of expectations. And I think, you know, I'm curious your thoughts, LSU's expectations are higher than they are at Michigan. Um, LSU expects to compete for national championships. They obviously have a recent national championship to point to. Uh, they expect to compete with Alabama. They expect to complete, c- compete with Florida and some of the elite programs in the country. I still wonder, and I completely praise Michigan for doing something that I wish more schools did, and that's make the coach's contract relative to how the coach is done. And, and don't put yourself in a bad position if you have to make a change. And that was really, I, I, I was standing up and cheering Ward Manuel for restructuring a contract on an underperforming coach so that if they had to make a move, it wouldn't be uh, a horrible situation. Texas A&M might need to learn something from that. Um, Michigan, though, as well as they have done, just looking at their schedule, and they have a big one this week against Nebraska at night, which we can talk about later. The games that they're ultimately judged on, they have not played. That's October 30th at Michigan State. That's November 13th at Penn State. And then obviously November 27th at home against Ohio State, which Harbaugh is, is 0-6 again. So that those are the games. You know, I, I, I'm still – and that's, I think, what the hesitancy is. There's, there's improvement, and maybe it'll be enough. But what do you think will happen, Ralph, if Michigan goes 0-3 in those games – or even one and two, and and they're still not on the doorstep of getting to Indianapolis, which they've never been to for the Big Ten Championship, nor are they on the doorstep of winning their first Big Ten Championship in in, in more than 15 years, because that's what the expectation should be at Michigan. Otherwise, what are we doing? Is it just a nine and three program and and we accept our lot in life? Or at this point, is the expectation you have to be winning some of those games or after restructuring that contract, we have to consider making a change still. Yeah, that that is interesting. So I, I think you mentioned where you mentioned the comparison between Michigan and LSU is interesting, right? Uh, I, you know, LSU, I could see making a rash move, right? Like you could see it, even if Orgeron gets it back together and you have an eight win season uh, at LSU, which rationally you know, that should be okay. I mean, again, you, you, you're, you can say like, that's not the standard we want here, but considering the guys won a national championship, you could, you should also be able to say like, okay, like we're, we're you know, we're going to give you another year to figure it out. We're not going to pull the plug, but I could see LSU pulling the plug on an eight and four season. Um, I could see Michigan sort of saying, okay, we only won two games last year. We get to eight and four. Eight and four might be a little bit of a gray area. Yeah. But we get to nine and three, but we've lost the three games that mean most, right? We have lost the three games that mean most. I mean, we, we were close in those games, but I feel like the, 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 the vibe at Michigan is, well, we saw progress. We were competitive in those games, hopefully. Um, we have a nice recruiting class. I think we're, we're building on, in other words, it's just a different approach at Michigan where I don't think Michigan wants to seem rash. So I think Michigan could convince themselves the, the, the brain trust at Michigan that no, we're not firing coaches after nine and three seasons, even if the three losses were the games are that are most important on our schedule. Uh, And we're going to, you know, sort of move forward here. Um, I mean, don't quote me on that or don't hold me to that because clearly, again, like they structured it in a way that 
it could allow them to pull the shoot. I could also see if, if things were to work out in that way. You know, there's also the element of simply Harbaugh being Harbaugh, right? Like I could see him sort of like going to like, you know, having a meeting of the minds with Ward Manuel and saying, you know what? Yeah. I've been banging my head against this, this Ohio state wall for a while. Maybe you guys should try something else. Like there's also, a, a, like, I don't, I, I can't in any way fathom Ed O you know, Coach O walking away from the LSU job, right? That's not happening. But I could see Harbaugh in a world where, again, it gets to the end of the season, they've stumbled to the finish because all those games are on the back end of the schedule, saying, you know, we, we, we've, we've, we've made progress. I've, I've left the program in a better place, right? We can use all those cliches. And them having sort of an amicable divorce. Yeah. But at that nine and three doesn't strike me as, Michigan pushing Harbaugh out. I think what's so interesting about, I love that this, we did this comparison because I was thinking about, as you were talking, who means more to their school? Is it Jim Harbaugh and Michigan? That's probably the knee jerk. And it's probably right because he was a, a great player there, went on to have an NFL career, helped them to big 10 championship and had records and was a Bo Schembechler guy. But Ed Orgeron won a freaking national championship. <laughs> At, S- at LSU, which was an, which is a, a, a criminally under, underachieving program, in my view. Those are my words. Under Les Miles at the end, especially on at offense. the end. Yeah, at the end. And, under and, Les Miles. They, I mean, that Les offense was a joke. And played and, for another. But yes, at the end, yeah, they, they at were the end. dysfunctional. And so and he's obviously this is the dream job and he's as Louisiana as you could get. Um, but I, you know, to your point, when you were talking about the amicable divorce, that's how I've always felt it was going to go with Michigan. I just, and I've talked to people in the industry about this. They say, we cannot envision Ward Manuel walking into Jim's office and saying, Jim, you're fired. Mm-hmm. Whereas Scott Woodward did not hire Edward Ed Orgeron. I think he appreciates what Ed has done. You know, it's never good, good to make a coaching change, but I, I you know, that, that, that seems like a much more realistic, uh, uh, scene, in my in my mind, than the one at Michigan, especially because you have an AD with the reputation of hiring some really uh, big name coaches. So, um, but 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 again, you, you could certainly make the case because of what Ed Ed did in, in 2019 and and a solid season in, in 2018 that he's done more on yeah. the national level than Jim Harbaugh's done. I mean, we're talking about you know, can Jim Harbaugh beat Michigan State in a, with a second year coach and Mel Tucker? Can Jim Harbaugh you know beat Penn State? And then, and then you know, the Ohio State thing has been such an issue now for multiple Michigan coaches. So, whereas Alabama, or sorry, LSU beat Alabama. LSU has beaten Texas A&M. They've they they they've won they've won a national title. They've been to the mountaintop. So they're really interesting comparisons, even though there's some obviously key differences. So I'll I'll end, I'll end it on this. I think there is a feeling at Michigan, mostly an embedded feeling at Michigan for a lot of the fan base and and the people who are close to that program, that they want Harbaugh to succeed. Even after all that they've been through where he hasn't lived up to the hype and the hype was super high. I I always, nobody defends Harbaugh more than me. And which I will always say he is judged by his failures all the time. He is always judged first and foremost by his failures. And he has absolutely not lived up to hype to the hype, but he has not been a bad coach and he has definitely not been a, had a bad tenure at Michigan. Um, but I do believe that there is a sense uh, at Michigan that we want this person to succeed. And I still believe coming in the door, there was a lot of people who were very skeptical 
of Kojo, despite how he connects to a certain degree with the fan base on a, on an emotional level, I still think that there are a lot of people who thought this is the defensive line coach. Mm -hmm. He is the interim. He is not really worthy of our platform of our great job of, of the, of the national championship level program that he is stepping into. So that skepticism has remained and I'm not sure they are invested in him, his success at LSU as Michigan, the community of Michigan is, is invested in Harbaugh's success. And I think that where is where you draw the line between the, the two coaches. I think one fan, one fan base wants this guy to succeed and the other fan base is happy when this guy succeeds, but has never truly felt like they are connected to his success in a way that breeds a lot of loyalty. Right. No, I mean, in some ways, you wonder in, um, I guess it would be 18 years or I'm terrible at math. Whenever they do the 20 or 30 year anniversary of LSU's um, championship team and, and, and you got Ed Orger on there and you got Joe Burrow there and you got Joe Brady there who gets the loudest ovation. Yeah. I mean, I was there the night, uh, Joe Burrow's senior night where he had the, the, he had the Jersey with the Burrow spelled in the Cajun way on the back. I mean, that guy will always be, a favorite son of LSU, even though he, he didn't start his college career there and he came from Ohio. I mean, I, I, I wonder of those three guys who will be appreciated the most. And, and I think there's a conversation to have about does LSU appreciate one of its native sons of those three guys. You have a guy from Ohio, a guy from, I think, Pennsylvania and a guy from Bayou country, and he might be the least appreciated. Whereas to your point, yeah, I think there is a desire for Michigan to see Harbaugh succeed but I also think there has been a, whether they admit it or not, an adjusted expectation there that they know that beating Ohio state is a once in a blue moon thing. Uh, not no pun intended. Uh, it's not going to happen on a regular basis because Ohio state just has more talent and they have a program that it's at a different level than Michigan is right now. So, you know, should Michigan adjust those expectations? We can discuss that. But I think that's the reality of what's going on in, in, in Ann Arbor right now. OK, let me let me turn this conversation to the Big Ten in general, and then we'll preview this week's games as we have uh, become accustomed to on this show over the last couple of weeks. Well, Adam will go through his top five most intriguing games. We'll go uh, one through five on my list as well. Some of the games will be the same and we'll preview those games, but we'll do that after our break. But I do want to uh, talk about the Big Ten in general here because it is uh, it is October it is October 5th. So last year at this time, I believe, if I remember correctly, gosh, I probably should have Googled this before I, before I started the show. I think this was the week that the Big Ten came back uh, and decided that it was going to play. Um, because I, a couple of weeks later was when the season ramped up. The season started, uh, you know, the, the, I think the second, the, the last weekend of October or the last weekend of, of October. And so it was right around a year ago when, you know, Mich- like, like the Big Ten was a sort of like synonymous with dysfunction. You know, the Pac-12 had also not decided not to play, but they weren't getting like the Big Ten was in the middle of a of a, a presidential race. Right. Like its dysfunction was being would be a, a, a part of a, a political football. Uh, it could not have been in a worse place, the Big Ten. 
And, you know, a year later, because winning cures everything, the Big Ten has five teams in the top 11. Four of them are undefeated. And, it, you know, we're starting to look ahead to thank, uh, Halloween weekend where it could have these two monster games with Michigan State and uh, Michigan, Penn State, and uh, Ohio State. There's interesting games this weekend. Uh, you know, it seems like everything's back to normal in the Big Ten, and you know the Big Ten pretty well. Uh, it, it, does winning simply cure everything? Is everything simply back to normal in the Big Ten a year after it was just an absolute punching bag? Well, yeah, I mean, the answer is yes, just in the sense that games are happening, fans are in the stands. You know, knock on wood, one thing that we thought would be more of a factor this year is COVID, and it really hasn't been. Um, I think that's largely not because no one's testing positive. It's because the rules and the testing are different. And so these games are proceeding uh, week, week to week. And so I think everybody's enjoying the season much, much more. You and I were at Penn State, you know, for the whiteout crowd against Auburn a year ago. That was supposed to be Ohio State and there was no one in the stands. So it's just a, a completely different feeling around the league. Now, are all the are all the sentiments around what happened last year uh, gone and and does everyone feel differently about the decisions and Commissioner Kevin Warren and some of the you know presidents I, th- that that's still there I think there's still some some anger and, and frustration you know especially among the coaches maybe more so than the athletic directors yeah I wrote about this in the summer um, you know just looking at uh, the year the Big Ten's year of discontent. And one feed, the feedback I got from the athletic directors is that things had improved in terms of their communication with the league office and the way that Kevin Warren was leaning on them and their experience with helping him, who is truly an outsider, make decisions in, in the conference. I think one thing the Big Ten did, which was really smart after the way last year went, is they, is they left the COVID protocols up to the individual schools and their jurisdictions instead of dictating, this is what we're going to do. Um, and again, last year was so different and we knew so much less about the virus and how it affected uh, campuses and teams and games and all of that. And so uh, some of the decisions were, were certainly made a little bit rashly, but understandably at the same time. So I, I think there's a, there's a better relationship between administrators and the league, the coach relationship and how they look at it. Um, I, I don't know if that's ever going to be completely repaired. I think people are still looking for Kevin Warren to lead from the front in issues like the college football playoff and where it's going and some of the other big topics around the sport. We don't hear from Kevin, at least on the record, about some of those things, maybe as much as some would like to in the league. But you know, generally, I think everyone's you know excited for the season and excited for the basketball season and there's there's good teams in the league and it looks like they're going to be back in the playoff and in some form or fashion uh this year whether it's ohio state or someone else and so i think in that sense all is well and there's not as much angst and anger and frustration as there was certainly a year ago yeah and i'll uh, i'll i'll give a, a props to warren for a, a really smart hire right he hires diana sabo to sort yes. of run who's a who is the right hand woman uh, for Gene Smith at Ohio State for several years and sort of brings her in to run that. I, I guess the best way to describe it is sort of the day-to-day operations of sports, right? Of like getting games played and events made and, and media days run. Like it, it's, it, she's, she's, uh, she's got a very broad resume there and a, and a pretty uh, big to-do list. And a lot of it is sort of like, 
here's someone who really knows the Big Ten and all the rules and college sports and the ins and outs of like how we do things around here, but not how we do things at the league office, how we do things on campus, not just a campus, but at Ohio State, which is the campus. So this is a person who can sort of guide, help guide Warren through the day-to-day decisions of like, hey, how does this work around here? How does this work? How should this function? Who do we need to talk to? Who are the eight, like when it comes to AD outreach and coach outreach and making sure people feel sort of welcome and having a little more of that connection with league office and campus. I think she's done a good job of of providing that and being a, a good confidant to Warren. And again, Winning cures everything, man. Like if you're if you're knocking them dead and you have four undefeated teams and two teams in the top five, oh, yeah. I mean, everybody gets on board. And um, you know, you mentioned the uh, the college football playoff. I think I think there is it is. I'm interested to see how that plays out from the Big Ten perspective because it's pretty obvious that the the, the league that would I know it's it's sort of snarled here a little bit. And the 12 teamer is still on the table. And there's some talk about, well, maybe we should reconsider eight. But the Big Ten throws a lot of weight around. And it's sort of aligned itself with the Pac-12 and the ACC here for some reasons. And I don't want to get too deep into the alliance and roll down that rabbit hole. But the Big Ten uh, carries a big stick and is really able, is in position to benefit a lot from a 12-teamer here. And I, I do get the sense from talking to people within the Big Ten that they might want Warren to be a little more aggressive of like, hey, listen, you made your point about process here and what the SEC should and should not have done and how Greg Sankey should have been involved in this process. But you know what? 12 works for us, too. So let's yeah. not be like too obstinate about like stopping 12 because we are, are going to benefit from 12 as well. No, I think, I mean, you and I talked about it over the weekend during our drive and I'd been more on the eight team side and, and you made some really good points about 12 and from a big 10 perspective, it does make sense. I mean, you just go back and look at the, the, you know, since the playoff started, if it had been a 12 team system, the big 10 would regularly have had multiple entrants and, and sometimes maybe three entrants, um, which again would be, uh, would be great for, for this conference. Uh, to, to not just have Ohio State be the, the one carrying the flag and to have multiple teams like this year. I mean, you have Iowa in the West, who is certainly a playoff candidate. And then you have up to four teams in the East, who I think you could say, at least right now, are in that mix. Uh, Michigan, Michigan State, maybe a little bit less so, but Penn State and Ohio State you know, are, are teams. And we'll find out about Penn State more this weekend. But you know, the, they're, they're right in that playoff conversation. And with a 12-team system – we're not talking about maybe one loss Penn state versus one loss Ohio state as an elimination game or uh, mm-hmm. one loss Michigan visiting one loss Penn state as an elimination game. Those teams with their overall resume could still get into a 12 team playoff. So it, 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 it's, you know, I, I think the, the language around the, the 12 team playoff and how it's selected and you know, all of that will be interesting to see where the big 10 falls and, and what kept, we just haven't heard much from Kevin Warren on this topic. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that, 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 that's still a bit of a frustration in the league because you went from a very aggressive outspoken leader to uh, Jim Delaney to someone who naturally is more cautious 
and, and, and isn't going to speak on those topics. Kevin will share his views on, you know, student athlete, uh, mental health and, and diversity and, and, and a lot of other things, but you don't hear him maybe as much on the topics that resonate most with the big 10 fans. Okay. So we're going to take a quick break here. I'm going to come back with Adam Rittenberg from ESPN and we will preview a big week six uh, with some very intriguing big 10 games uh, at the top of our list. You're listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast with your host, Ralph Russo, the Associated Press College Football Writer. If you have any questions for our host or any of our guests, email the show at aptop25mailbag at gmail.com. And to get the rest of your football fix, also take a listen to the AP Pro Football Podcast with host Rob Motti writer and sports radio personality as he tackles all the important news on and off the field of the National Football League and provide you with insider exclusives and in-depth analysis along with insightful interviews with Hall of Famers, current players, coaches, and executives. Rob will take you around the league, break down the biggest games, and keep you in the know only the way AP can. Like, subscribe, and comment wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. And we're back on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. Uh, Ralph Russo here with Adam Rittenberg, my friend from ESPN. Uh, and, okay, so Adam, the way this goes is we rank them from five through one, uh, one being at the top. Uh, you go first. You give me your number five. I'll give you my number five. There will be some similarities on here for the sake of, making it more interesting. I will defer to you in a few cases and, and pick some different games uh, that I might have already, I might have normally put on there because again, we don't want them to be the exact same list, but, uh, and again, it's not necessarily the best games of the week though. The best games of the week will show up here in many ways. It's, it's, it's just, it's the most intriguing games. It's the games that make you go. I'm interested to see what happens there because that could get weird or have some ramifications <laughs> moving forward so your number five on your list of most intriguing games of the week is okay so i'm going to the plains and this game became more interesting because of thanks to coach o and the uh, and the lsu tigers because the auburn tigers and a rejuvenated bo Nix went into uh death valley and, and got a win last week so i'm going georgia number two uh, at number 18, Auburn, oldest rivalry in the Deep South. I know the, the point spread would suggest this isn't that interesting, but I'm very intrigued to see Georgia on the road, and I want to see what this Auburn offense with Brian Harson as coach and Bo Nix with some confidence. Um, uh, I know he's driven Auburn fans crazy over the years, how he performs against what looks like the nation's best defense in Georgia and then Georgia's own quarterback situation, which continues to be a frustration for their fans and for coach Kirby smart. And how's JT like what injury is going to pop up this week for JT Daniels? Is it going to be Stetson Bennett uh, against Auburn? Um, you know, he, he was in the game last year and, and performed well. So it, it's going to be a, a fun one on the plains, even though you know, Georgia's favored by more than two touchdowns to win. I, I will say this. Uh, we have, we saw really the best of Bo Nicks last week. Uh, and the Bo Nix experience is one that, uh, that you know, often brings us to many different and strange places. The Bo Nix experience against this Georgia offense, uh, Georgia defense could be pretty interesting um, and maybe not in the best ways. But, yeah, I, I, I think this is a worthy number five pick. So my number five, um, 
I wanted to get the Pac-12 into this discussion because I do wonder if we might see a, a, a situation where Utah could get back into things in the Pac-12 South. Uh, you know, they lose to, to BYU, uh, lose to San Diego State. So listen, uh, BYU, uh, Utah, this is not a playoff year for Utah. We're not looking at that. But the Pac-12 South in general, you know, UCLA's already lost once and Arizona State also lost to BYU. That might really Everybody loses to BYU. You have to lose to BYU in the Pac-12. Yeah, right. That's I mean, like, BYU, we all understand deal. that BYU is the best team in the Pac-12 South. But 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 I'm interested to see if Utah can can maybe emerge as a contender. Maybe USC has a chance to get it's going to be a bit of a mess here. And I'm interested to see which one of these two teams can come out of this again, looking like a bit of a contender in a division that has that I think will be messy, uh, not necessarily good for the Pac-12's playoff hopes. But could also be fun. I mean, that's the other thing. Like we frame these things in in terms of the playoff all the time, and sometimes denigrate them when they're not up to playoff level. But that race could be pretty weird and interesting uh, in the Pac-12 South. And I think the Utah USC winner. Um, it's been a home dominated series, uh, and so and it's at USC. I think that's where we're looking for. I, I could see that becoming a game where one of the, the winner of that game gets sort of launched into something that kind of looks like Pac-12 South contendership. And USC, honestly, frankly, if they lose again, that's three Pac-12 losses. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it becomes totally about their coaching search then. I mean, it, the USC, the interest in USC falls off to nothing about uh, other than who is going to be USC's next coach. And oh, by the way, we know for sure it's not going to be the interim. Yeah, I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, a, that's a good one. I, you and I were at that game a couple of years ago at the Coliseum when, uh, when the fans were chanting for Urban Meyer, who was doing the Fox, uh, broad or the, the set broadcast and, and USC, uh, you know, kind of made less mistakes than Utah. It was a messy one, but <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm excited for that one because, yeah, I mean, Utah had got it. Unfortunately, you know, they've been through a horrible, Tragedy with yeah. Aaron Lowe, and um, and I know they're going to be trying to play for him the rest of the season. And so it, it's definitely a team not to write off, even though uh, they haven't gotten off to the start that uh, that, that many had, had expected with those Mountain West losses, but they haven't lost in the league. So And then their quarterback, I mean, right. I mean, listen, awful, tragic situation with Aaron Lowe and his death. Uh, uh, his his killing, and then the weirdness of their Charlie Brewer just up and leaves right, and just after a few games. So it's been a weird ride. And I'm I, and again, the other thing that makes me interested about how Utah comes through this is that's a that's a good staff, right? That's a that's a stable program. That that pr- stability has been what has pulled Utah to the top of the Pac-12 South amid a bunch of programs that have been anything but stable. Uh, so I do wonder if like that stability, uh, Kyle Whittingham uh, are able to get things on an even keel, work their team through a tough situation. And all of a sudden, again, that stability sort of shines through and Utah ends up having a pretty good year. All right. Number four for you, Adam, and just roll right through it. There you go. So, so Ralph, you know, we spent a lot of time last last week together and, and you know, you've been on the road and away from your family for for a long time. And you talked about you're needing maybe a break to be at home this weekend, but I'm going to challenge you, my friend. I think you should make the trek to Warren McGurk Alumni Stadium in Amherst, Massachusetts, because on Saturday, UConn comes to town to face UMass. 
This is the game I cannot wait to see. It probably should be a little higher on my list, but these teams are a combined 0 and 11. UConn is a, a field goal favorite on the road, and uh, they they nearly beat Vanderbilt. I mean, UMass has just been horrendous. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I, not to make too light of it, because you know, there's coaches and players, and they're doing their best. But uh, there's a lot of us in the media that will have an insane amount of interest in what happens with uh, with the UConn UMass game. Certainly, my our friend Ryan McGee who does our our bottom 10 at ESPN uh, every week will be, uh, will be very locked into uh, to what happens in that one. I will say this. If, if the, the cool thing about football is it, it, the sport of football, it's a little like it has a little bit of tennis in it. And when I say that, I mean, if the two competitors are about the same, it is an enjoyable experience for those two competitors, right? The problem, because if, if one is better than the other, then that looks like a mess. There's a chance here that these two teams, neither of which play a lot of defense, we were rich play any defense, frankly. Like there is a possibility that these two teams are of similar quality to, to produce a, an interesting or at least entertaining game. So you're right. We're all going to be, you know, rubbernecking this game. I'm glad you put it on your list. My number four is I I was sort of uh, waffling between a couple of SEC games. And since the theme of the show is sort of like, hey, what's next for Coach O? Well, Coach O's got to go to Kentucky. And I've been all about Kentucky being like sort of like this is a good year for Kentucky. I was on that like Kentucky hype train of like, hey, man, I could see nine or maybe even 10 wins off of this Kentucky team. Not good enough to really challenge Georgia, but like the possibility exists here for Kentucky to be really good and winning at Florida or excuse me, beating Florida at home last week is a big deal for Kentucky. Hadn't happened in, in years. They've only beaten Florida, you know, one other time in the last 35 years. So like in, on, in some sense, like the Kentucky, like I feel good about being on the Kentucky hype train. But when you dig into how they beat Florida last week, it's, it sort of tempers some of that enthusiasm. This is a game Coach O has to win. He has the better and more talented team. If you go to and, and, and not saying it's going to be an easy game to win, Kentucky is good. They 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 are the the SEC's Big Ten team, right? They play defense and they run the ball and they are old school in in an old school Big Ten way. It should be thirty five degrees and cloudy, right, for this game uh, <laughs> because that's the way Kentucky wants to play. But this is a really big game for Coach O. Uh, you know, this is a game where he's got the better squad. He's got the better talent. And if he is going to patch together a season that does not lead to his firing, they really do need to beat Kentucky. Absolutely. I mean, it's as close to a must must win as you can get, um, especially with the remaining games left in the division and the, the lack of confidence and some of the operational issues on offense that surfaced in the Auburn loss. And yeah, you're playing a really good defense. I, I talked to Mark Stoops um, last week for, for a piece I did on kind of prove it games as they had Florida coming up and Kentucky had, had found a way to be undefeated despite having the worst turnover margin in the country. And Mark was very aware of that and, and knowing that they needed to improve. And, you know, Florida was the one making more mistakes and Kentucky took advantage, even though they weren't great, on offense. So, uh, yeah, cur- I'm always curious to see, you know, like, like the talent level, you know, cause, cause, uh, you know, used to assume LSU used the more talented team, but Kentucky has done such a great job of recruiting, you know, Vince Marrow and others on that staff. 
uh, have gone out and, and, and brought in some really good uh, high-level players to Lexington, and they, 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 they've added transfers like Nebraska's Wandale Robinson, who's making a big impact for them. So I, 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 that's, a, that's a fascinating one, and certainly from a coaching carousel perspective, one that a lot of us will be watching because uh, you know, LSU you know, needs to win and, 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 and take the pressure off a little bit because it's going to come back even more so in the coming weeks. Yeah, the last thing I'll say about that is uh, where Kentucky is best is where uh, LSU, I think, is struggling worse right now is on the lines, right? Uh, offensive and defensive lines, that might be advantage Kentucky, which is not the way it's supposed to be if you're LSU. All right, number three for you, Adam, is? Number three. Okay, so this is my first uh, Big Ten game that I'm including here, and it's one that, you know, to your earlier point, Nebraska was one of the teams that drew me into college football as well, uh, especially in the 90s. And you know, having a chance to, to go to Lincoln and experience that environment, it's still one of the best in the country. would highly recommend to all the listeners, if you haven't been to a game at Memorial Stadium in Lincoln, get out there. And this should be a, a real fun one on Saturday night. Number nine, Michigan undefeated, as we mentioned, going on the road again to play Nebraska. Nebraska just three and three. Uh, with just an inexcusable opening loss to Illinois, a game that I covered down in Champaign. But really, since then, they've played, they played well. Uh, you know, uh, dominant wins against, unfortunately, your alma mater, Fordham, Ralph, and, and Buffalo, as well as uh, narrow losses to both Oklahoma and Michigan State. And then they just crushed my alma mater. So actually, I'll do the math here. I think they've beaten our alma maters, Ralph, 108 to 14. Uh, that's, uh, <laughs> that's, not, that's not great for the Fordham and Northwestern fans. That's more acceptable for Fordham, though. Yeah, a little more. <laughs> You know, we were kind of expecting that. And, you know, uh, for, for Northwestern, it's a very different discussion there, Adam. It is. And, and Northwestern actually usually plays a very close game with Nebraska. They have their own problems to deal with. But clearly, Scott Frost's team is, 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 is confident and, and they're playing at a, a much higher level on defense, certainly, and will really challenge this Michigan offense, which has run the ball really well with with Blake Corum and, and Haskins and, you know, Cade McNamara showed really showed something I thought last week against a good Wisconsin, really good Wisconsin defense. And then, uh, and then we'll see how, how Michigan's offense, uh, or sorry, how, how Nebraska's offense with Adrian Martinez, and he's playing a lot better going against this Michigan defense with an, a largely new staff, Mike McDonald coming over from the Ravens, Aiden Hutchinson is playing at an all America type level, I think on the defensive line. So, uh, you know, again, another test for Michigan, it's not in the division. It's not necessarily a rival game but it's going to be a big environment with a lot of eyeballs and uh an important opportunity for them to continue to show hey we have turned a page and we are going to be a contender in the east division yeah you want to do a uh how quickly narratives can flip this game if nebraska suddenly beats michigan and now scott frost has a top 10 victory uh and all of a sudden you're thinking wow like this is this is proof of concept, right? Is, uh, is is a term that gets thrown around. Like this is what Nebraska maybe could be. Wow, holy cow! Like maybe it's actually coming together, and suddenly the discussion on Harbaugh will again be, "Wow, lost that game, supposed to win." You know, now is it is he going to get to the eight eight or nine wins that we thought in the first place? So it'll be. You know, these two guys both came in, these two coaches both came into this season uh, drawing a lot of comparisons, the two, you know, former quarterbacks, alma mater, uh, where they go from here after this season, things will absolutely flip. Like everything that we've come up to, the, we've, that has led up to this point, totally flips on its head if Nebraska beats Michigan. I am super fascinated by that game. So the last two on our list are – uh, so, well, excuse me. Uh, let me let me give number three. Your number three. I, I, I almost, I almost three? got my number three. Yeah, my <laughs> number three 
is Notre Dame at Virginia Tech. Now, we got to see Notre Dame last week, and uh, the Irish got problems. Uh, you know, they've managed to, they've managed to hide them. Uh, they've done a, a, to some ways and be commended for basically working around uh, problem solving uh, and working around their issues on the offensive line, which have led to issues at quarterback. And I say that because I think they have a quarterback in Jack Cohn who would be serviceable if the offensive line is good. But if the offensive line is good, then it becomes a, mud- a bit of a muddled mess. Uh, and they go to Virginia Tech. The other reason why I find this game interesting, Virginia Tech, not very good offensively, but quite good defensively under Justin Hamilton, defensive coordinator there. Uh, t- tentacles into hot seats, too, also, right? Virginia Tech wins this game. All of a sudden, Justin Fuente, hey, that's looking pretty good there. The guy who came in maybe on the hottest seat in the country, uh, you lose this game, and all of a sudden, you see a path towards Virginia Tech season sort of unraveling and getting to where a lot of us thought it might be, which is Justin Fuente being out at the end. Uh, The other really interesting part of this game is Notre Dame has Cincinnati's playoff hopes may be more dependent on Notre Dame than they are on Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure Cincinnati is good. I'm pre- pretty sure the Bearcats are going to win a lot of games. Whether they go undefeated, we'll see. But I think the Bearcats are going to continue to be very good. But since but Notre Dame needs to win a bunch of games. And I fear that there's that that it could unravel for Notre Dame, that their problems are are, are deep enough on offense that they could all of a sudden spin off to like a seven and five or eight and four season. Again, I give them credit. They have been able to work around them. I think the staff is still capable of doing that, of, of, of piecing it together this year. Um, but I think this is a pivotal game. A road game against a good defense is a tricky spot for Notre Dame. Yeah, it, 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 just that quarterback situation. And Brian Kelly, you know, after the game against Cincinnati, basically said, we can't keep doing this. We can't expect to, to, to win and, and progress as a group when we're, we're, we're bringing quarterbacks in and out. And, and while I understand it to a degree because of their issues on the offensive line, there were some quarterback decisions in that Cincinnati game. I think they brought Tyler Buckner in for one play and then took him out. I mean, it just seems like they're scrambling right now on that side of the ball. So the, the, their plan against, you know, arrested Virginia Tech defense, which, you know, made North Carolina look bad in that opening game and, and has been pretty, pretty strong this season is going to be a, a fascinating one. And, you know, I think it's a great point about Cincinnati. You know, Indiana is not going to help them. You know, we know that now. Indiana, Michael Penix has another injury, and they already have three losses, I believe, and, and their schedule only gets tougher. That, that win is not going to bolster Cincinnati's resume. So the Notre Dame win absolutely has to. And then on the flip side, you know, for, for Fuente, this would be, I don't think it's a must win, but it's an important game to show that things are, are, are headed in the right direction in, in Blacksburg because he was certainly close to, uh, to, 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 to being let go last year and needs to, needs to show obvious improvement this year. And they've had some better moments, especially that Carolina game. But this would be a, a signature win for, for Justin and his team going forward is, is in the wide-open ACC. So big moment for, for both. And uh, I'm just really interested to see what the plan is on offense for Notre Dame going against the good defense because they need some answers. They need to find a way to get that running game going. It looks like Michael Mayer will play and that's great for them. He's their best offensive player, but what else can they do to try to generate some points? Because as, as, uh, as close as that Cincinnati game was briefly in the fourth quarter, if Cincinnati finishes drives, that's a blowout. That game is over in the third quarter. 
And, uh, and, and that, that, that's maybe the gap that Notre Dame is facing because of their issues on the offensive line and a quarterback. Yeah, there's a MacGyver aspect to Notre Dame this year in that they are just, they are literally like, okay, how can we make this work? We have this, this these disparate pet parts here, and how can we turn this into something that will save the day here? And that's what they're going to have to do for the rest of the season. Okay, so our numbers one and two uh, are basically the same. I, I, I think I had sort of tweaked the order here, but I'll let you go and we'll hit them both because they are, I think, the biggest games of the weekend. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, so I'm going uh, the game in, in Dallas uh, at the State Fair, Oklahoma and Texas at number two, number six, Oklahoma, number 21, uh, Texas. Oklahoma has come in undefeated, although they have, what is it, three or four single-digit losses or single-digit wins. They've only won one of their games so far this season by more than a touchdown, and they haven't exactly played anybody uh, to the caliber of, of Texas. Now, Texas has responded well since that loss to Arkansas, where they were really dominated at the line of scrimmage. You know, they, they blew out uh, Rice. They blew out Texas Tech. Uh, the game against TCU was, was fairly close, but they were able to, uh, to, to, to get a win in Fort Worth against Gary Patterson, which has been a problem for them over the years. And, and while, um, you know, Casey Thompson was not the guy that I know former Texas assistants told me needed to win this, this starting quarterback job, he's done, a, he's done a nice job so far. You know, nine touchdowns. Three interceptions was not as accurate last week against TCU, uh, but but will lead this group again uh, against a, a you know a sooner defense that I think it has certainly improved. The question for me, Ralph, it, well, other than the whole these are both going to the SEC and they're sort of joined at the hip and kind of this odd Big Twelve game, which is really going to be an SEC game in the near future, is will Oklahoma start looking like a playoff contender? Because they haven't. They've been disappointing. But they're still undefeated, and they have some opportunities ahead of them. That you know, certainly this week, Oklahoma State at the end, the Bedlam game, that could be a resume booster for them. Who knows where Texas Tech will be? They've been a surprise. Baylor has been a, a surprise. Iowa State, maybe they're ranked when when, when they have uh, the Cyclones come in in, in November. So I, I, they're the team I'm watching in many ways. Although there's some intriguing storylines as well on the Texas side with uh, with Sarkeesian, Steve Sarkeesian, uh, with his first uh, go round against the Sooners. Yeah, it'd be. John Robinson is becoming a, a legitimate Heisman Trophy candidate for Texas in, a, in, a, at a, in an era where running backs don't win the Heisman. It's probably going to be a, a long haul for him. But, you know, there hasn't been a clear quarterback sort of coming through here. Uh, so maybe Bijan's got a chance. The interesting thing to me here is, um, are we just going to need to accept that Oklahoma's offense is going to be good, not great? It's going to be efficient and it's going to move the ball but it's not going to have that explosiveness that it's had in recent in past years that has sort of made it, you know, some of the, the, the Baker Mayfield, Kyler Murray offenses were among the greatest in, 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 in college football history, statistically. Um, this is not that offense. So are we going to be okay with, and just sort of say again, like this is what Oklahoma is. They're going to run the ball okay, not necessarily explosively. They're not going to create a ton of huge plays. And what's interesting about this is Texas seems to be the team that has the ability to make a ton of huge plays, right? They seem to be the more explosive team offensively so far. Uh, Texas lost one of their better offensive linemen, uh, Denzel Okafor. A, a good guard is out for the season. From talking to some people in Austin, they think they're okay as long as they don't lose any more offensive linemen, that they had about a six, seven person deep situation. Um, but so, so it's a loss. He's a good player, but the, it, it's not something they can't necessarily absorb. Um, 
Uh, yeah, you know, it, it, it's so funny because of the Arkansas game. We are, I think you're right. I think a lot of people immediately pulled the shoot on Texas and was like, okay, we're not doing that anymore. We're not doing the Texas is back thing. But if they beat Oklahoma, uh, they're going to be in great position to possibly win the Big 12. And we'll start throwing Texas into that. Well, can Texas make the playoff if they win the Big 12? Um, it's interesting, again, just to see where they these two teams are. Oklahoma is still undefeated, but I think because of the way they are undefeated, it's giving us pause. Uh, I, I sort of had that as number one on my list, but but that's okay. We sort of hit that one. My number, my number two is your number one, so we'll just get into that, and that is uh, Penn State at Iowa. And you, you know, you can make it obviously that the it's three versus four, so it's the biggest game of the weekend. I thought that there was a little more impact with that OU Texas game as to what happens going forward in the Big Twelve. There's so much more possible, great, you know, so many more possibilities of what could go on in the Big Ten. But you're going to be at this game. I'm not making the trip to Iowa. It's an awesome place, uh, you know, for a, for a, not, not a night game but an a- afternoon game. Uh, a lot on the line for the Hawkeyes. Oh, a ton on the line. And, you know, especially because, you know, their division is, is down, quite frankly, this year um, with, uh, with Wisconsin, you know, down or Northwestern, which won the division way down. And so this is their opportunity, um, you know, maybe until they, they get, they, they go to Lincoln, Nebraska on, uh, on Black Friday, um, at, you know, at the very end of the regular season. So this is their chance uh, to, to really uh, show the country how, how good they are. If you haven't seen Iowa, you know, they've been a team that is very Iowa. They run the ball. They don't ask a ton from their quarterback, and they lean heavily on this playmaking defense, which generates turnovers and bunches. and And they're they're the show. They're the highlight show for this Iowa team. And that's certainly going to be the primary focus for James Franklin at Penn State and his offensive coordinator Mike Yurcich, who's done a really nice job, and Sean Clifford, their quarterback, to not give Iowa the ball and, and, and not make those mistakes that Maryland obviously made uh, last week and uh, Iowa State made and, and Indiana made. So it's going to be really interesting, both defenses. I, you know, I, I think you know, Kirk Ferentz had a lot of good defenses at Iowa. This might be the best. I think uh, it's definitely the best defense I've seen on the Penn State side since James Franklin got there. Brent Pry, who doesn't get a ton of attention nationally, their coordinator, who's been with James at a, a couple of stops now, is doing a really nice job, has a veteran group. He told me a few weeks ago he doesn't have to play a lot of guys. He can play five, 15 or 16 total uh, uh, in, in the rotation. They're really good in the red zone. And so I, you know, there's a reason why this is, a, is the b- biggest Big Ten game of the year to, to date, and the, uh, the over the total is 41 and a half. They're not expecting a lot of points to be scored. And just one last thing, Ralph, you know, I, I started covering the Big Ten for ESPN in 2008, and uh, the first really big game I covered at Iowa was undefeated Penn State coming into Kinnick Stadium, and the Hawkeyes upset them. And this has been a great rivalry. Uh, doesn't get as much attention as Ohio State and Michigan or, or some of the you know, in-state rivalries in the conference. Even Iowa-Wisconsin might get a little more juice. But Penn State-Iowa has been historically a lot really close games, really exciting ones, especially at Kinnick Stadium. I remember one year Penn State won on the final play. Uh, in the end zone. And so I'm expecting a really, really uh, a great, great scene for sure. And uh, a, a fun game w- between two teams that are absolutely as a ranking show in this playoff conversation. Yeah. It's uh, so, so again, again, not, don't expect a lot of points. Um, uh, Iowa doesn't pass the ball particularly well. 
Uh, Penn State doesn't run the ball particularly well. Did a little better last week uh, against Indiana. Got that cranking, but but haven't really sort of got that running game at. And you're not going to do it against Iowa. Like if you're if you're having an issue running the ball, it's probably not going to get fixed against Iowa. So that means it's a Sean Clifford game, which means that he's been really really good. Uh, the best he's played. But against an Iowa team that has just, you know, had, you know, fed off turnovers like no other team in the country. And, you know, I'll be the first to admit, like, I am still find myself being like, can they keep doing this? Can they just keep having these short fields and and scoring 30 points a game while barely putting up 350 yards of offense? Like, it just doesn't compute to my analytical brain. Um, But. But if they do and they do beat Penn State, uh, you got to dig into the schedules here. This is the only Big Ten East beast that Iowa plays. They've already played Indiana. Uh, They will play whom? Oh, they already played Maryland. So they're done with the East. Whereas, you know, Wisconsin had to play Michigan and Wisconsin's already lost a couple of games and Nebraska's got Ohio State down the road. So if you start really like if you start summing it up, you realize, oh, you can get very quickly to like, even if Iowa loses this game, Iowa's probably got a good path to getting to the Big Ten championship game. Right. It doesn't have a loss to Illinois already on its schedule like it like like Nebraska does. So Iowa is going to come out of this game regardless of how it finishes, how it does with a good path to get to the Big Ten championship game. If they win it, then all of a sudden you go, wow, now they have a good chance to get to the Big Ten championship game undefeated. And then you roll the dice and you're like they were against the Michigan State back in 2015. You're basically one good game away from being a playoff team. So uh, probably even uh, probably even more important for Penn State to win this game because it has Michigan. Michigan State, Ohio State, like they can't afford any slip ups outside of those games uh, if they're also going to have aspirations to win the Big Ten. So a really interesting game. Again, it, it don't expect a ton of points unless there's a ton of turnovers. But Iowa has a chance to to make that magic uh, turnover turnover wand that it seems to have. Phil Parker does a great job on the defensive side and uh, definitely uh, again, my number two, but that's only because I wanted to be different from uh, from Adam. Uh, my number one was Texas, and there are your five most intriguing games of what should be another really great. It feels like we've had a really nice run here of every week. Um, there's been some good marquee games, some interesting sort of you know uh, second on the matinee uh, games, and a few surprises uh, worked in. It's been a very fun season so far. Part of that, I'm sure, is also because we did not have a fun season last season. It was a season and we were happy with it. So maybe we are enjoying this season just a little more because we missed it so much. Yeah, no, no doubt. And, um, you know, last weekend was, was, a, was a lot of fun and a lot of interesting games. This weekend really looks to be maybe the best of the season as far as matchups, even, you know, Stanford, Arizona State on Friday night. I'm excited for that one. So, um, but yeah, the, in the next two weeks, maybe a little bit lighter, but it always depends on what happens this week. So that, that could shape those matchups coming up. But uh, no, really excited to be in Iowa City. And 
and uh, hope to see you down the road at, at another time. I'll show for you. I'll show for you anywhere, Ralph, to, to watch college football together. Yeah, thanks you so much, Adam, for joining me today. Thanks so much for uh, the lift. Drive safely to Iowa City. Adam Rittenberg from ESPN uh, does an amazing job covering the sport from coast to coast, uh, especially in, within the Big Ten. Thanks so much, Adam. Have a great day. Thanks, Ralph. And now three and out. First down. Suddenly, Stetson Bennett has become something of a polarizing player, um, or maybe he's being used as something of a Rorschach test to explore the mind of Georgia coach Kirby Smart. Bennett is the Bulldogs' backup quarterback, a former walk-on who has done a nice job both this season and last when given the opportunity to start. Georgia has two quarterbacks behind JT Daniels, and Stetson Bennett for that matter, who were highly touted recruits. But when Daniels gets hurt, Smart has turned to Bennett. Does that mean the highly touted recruits aren't as good as Georgia hoped? Does that mean Bennett is much better than we give him credit? Uh, Is it Smart signaling to the world that at his core, he just wants his teams to be Alabama Dynasty 1.0, which is to say mash opponents with defense and running game? and play the quarterback most likely to not get in the way. Is Smart making a short-sighted decision and not properly taking advantage of a chance to both develop the younger quarterbacks and maybe placate some egos in a transfer-mad world? I mean, Kirby did let Justin Fields get away. I'm not sure which of these possibilities are true. Might be a little bit of each. Mostly, though, I think it reflects... I guess that would be choice number three. I I think it's the type of game Smart prefers his team to play. He's built a dominant defense in an era when that has become virtually impossible. No matter how many offensive weapons the dogs accumulate, ideally Smart wants his teams to smother an opponent. I have been advocating for several years, even before Nick Saban, that defense no longer wins championships and teams such as LSU in 2019, Alabama in 2020 have seemed to validate that stance. Georgia is positioned to challenge that theory. The dogs are so talented, it's doubtful anybody on their regular season schedule will be able to get smart out of his comfort zone, which is to say defense running game. It will be fascinating to see how he and the Bulldogs respond if and when it does happen. They get pulled into a high-scoring game. But I think there is only one team in the country capable of doing it, and the soonest Georgia would play Alabama is the SEC championship game. Second down, let's talk Temple football for a second. I have to say I was not particularly optimistic about the Owls coming into this season and thought that could leave third-year coach Rod Carey in a pretty precarious position with a new AD coming in. Well, Temple has still not hired a new AD, and the Owls are 3-2 and after beating Memphis, a stunning result at least to me. The Owls were awful against Rutgers to open the season and never had much chance against BC a couple of weeks later. Their two victories, other than Memphis, are against Wagner and Akron. So before you buy stock in Temple going forward, be careful. 
But the AAC is not quite as good from top to bottom as it has been in recent years. And suddenly there is a path to six wins for Temple. This Owls team was stripped to the bone last season as they barely managed to field a team throughout the pandemic. I think six wins would be enough to get carry another season, especially considering, as I mentioned, Temple still does not have an AD. It's been 16 months since Pat Kraft left for BC. Lastly, the Owls go to Cincinnati this week. They're probably not taking another step toward bowl eligibility on Friday night against the Bearcats. Third down, let's go off the radar this week. TCU at Texas Tech. Another coach who a lot of us were ready to push out the door at the start of the season was Matt Wells of Texas Tech. Well, the Red Raiders are 4-1 and one with victories against Houston and West Virginia on that ledger. Patience appears thin in Lubbock these days, and a tailspin is certainly possible playing in a competitive Big 12 and dealing with a bunch of injuries. But a victory against TCU puts seven victories within pretty good reach of the Red Raiders. As for TCU, the Horned Frogs have lost two straight and face Oklahoma next week. I was one of the folks who thought TCU could be a dark horse in a balanced Big 12. Now I'm kind of wondering, what's the future at TCU for future Hall of Fame coach Gary Patterson? The Big 12 is probably the most difficult conference to get a read on. It's so balanced, and from week to week, it seems like the results can be almost random, especially in the middle of the conference, outside of maybe Oklahoma, and we'll see about Texas this weekend. You could see just about anybody going on a long losing streak or a long winning streak. But this really does seem to be a particularly pivotal game, TCU at Texas Tech, to get a read on the trajectory of each program. That is the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, John Radcliffe, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your pods. Please follow so you don't miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. 